We now worship our God through receiving with faith the preaching of His Word. Our text will be in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. So please turn with me in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. Hear now God's Word. And after six days, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And the cloud overshadowed them, and the voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them not to tell no one. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do scribes, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, as we open your holy word this morning, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. During the World War II, the Japanese took control of a very important island in the Philippines called Bataan. 75,000 Filipino and American troops were forced to make a deadly 65-mile march to prison camps. And an estimated 17,000 men died during and after the infamous Bataan Death March. Now, if you go to Bataan today, you will see that they have built a 95-meter-high meter cross atop a mountain to memorialize the Bataan Death March. They also put an elevator inside the cross so visitors can go to the top and see breathtaking sceneries overlooking several cities and Wonderful islands that were once abandoned and desolated, but are now free and beautiful. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the blood of the prisoners of war was waged and spilled for the freedom of the Filipino people. So is our freedom from the slave market of sin. 
as the precious blood of Jesus Christ was spilled for us on the cross. And now, not only do we ascend the mountain of the Lord, but by setting our eyes on Christ's cross and His glorious work, it becomes a lens how we see everything else, free and beautiful. C.S. Lewis was on point when he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Brothers and sisters in Christ, believe in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and let us behold Him supreme in our lives. It is the one thing that determines everything else. Our, our ignorance of who Christ is and His work leads to misunderstanding of His Word and His will for our lives, our church, and our society. And so, when we look at our passage, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, struggled with unbelief, which led to their misapplication of God's Word. And so, I want to call all of us this morning to three concrete actions on how our right belief about our Christ leads to beholding Him supreme in our lives. So we have three points and we have three key words for our children. The first point is we look to Jesus Christ in all His glory, verses 2 to 4. And the key word for the kids is look. Point number two, we listen to Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God. We see that in verses 5 to 8. And the key word for the kids is listen And point number three, we live as people for whom Christ suffered, died, and rose from the dead. We see that in verses 9 to 13. And the key word is live. Look, listen, and live. Let's start with the first point. We look to Jesus Christ in all His brilliance or in all His glory. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 3. Let me read again. And after six days... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Now the transfiguration happened six days after Jesus in chapter 8 asked the disciples, Who do people say that I am? We know the story. Peter answered, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, the connection between Peter's confession and Jesus' transfiguration was significant. In the Bible, God reveals Himself to man through word and deed. The same is true in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, right? Miracles are not an end in themselves. One of their purposes is to authenticate or validate the words of Christ. The transfiguration was the deed or the miracle that vindicated the prophetic words of Jesus in the previous chapter after the confession of Peter. And Jesus Christ's words was about his suffering, death, 
and resurrection. Right? But we see the transfiguration is, like, is unlike any other miracle. The miracle happened to Jesus himself. And that is significant. It, it is also significant to know the transfiguration was recorded in the first three gospel accounts. What happened to Jesus on that mountain tells Jewish and Gentile readers an important truth about who Christ is. Now we ask the question, what about the gospel account of John? He did not record the transfiguration, but we can see in the opening chapter how the gospel account of John was an exposition of what the transfiguration implies, and we will learn about that in a while. So there is no doubt that Jesus was in the state of glory when he was transfigured on that mountain before his disciples. And this tells us several things. First, that the suffering and death of Jesus are from above, not below. And that's a very important doctrine and theme, particularly in the book of Mark. The book of Mark is about Christ's power and authority over all creation. That's why Mark is very unique from the two synoptic gospels, right? It's all about action. It's action-packed gospel account because the, the theme is to, to show the power and authority of Christ over all creation. And the transfiguration of Jesus was a statement of his authority. And yes, even over his sufferings and death. The second implication of this miracle is that his suffering and death are not the end of his work as the Christ. His transfiguration looks forward to his exaltation in his glorious resurrection. And those are the two miracles that happened to Jesus himself. The transfiguration and the resurrection. Now the third implication of the transfiguration is that Christ fulfills the scripture. He is the center and the grand story of God's redemptive plan. He was the Messiah, the prophet's talked and prophesied about. And that's why in verse 4 we read, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now the transfiguration happened on the mountain. Jesus was there. Elijah and Moses were there. And the disciples of Jesus were there. Location is important. And if you are a real estate agent, we know that, right? The three important things as a selling point are location, location, location. Now let me use a Dutch illustration, if I may. Well, I have an excuse. I'm not Dutch, so I can use Dutch illustration somehow. And my Dutch friends can forgive me, but 
after driving around uh, in the Midwest or pulpit supply, you know, in Michigan, Iowa, Wisconsin, Minneapolis, Illinois, Indiana, my middle child began to love farm life. We would always stay at the farmer's house. And uh, one time, she told us that she wanted to marry a Dutch husband because he wants, you know, a Dutch husband and a farm life. And I know location is important, so on top of my head, I told her, you are going to Dort. <laughs> location is important. That's the point. Now, in the Bible, location is, very, is a very important question. Always ask the question whenever you read the Bible, what is the location? The location of Christ's transfiguration is on the mountain. Now, the theme of mountains in the Bible is essential, right? At the beginning in our call to worship, we mentioned that God summons us now to ascend, ascend Mount Zion, the mountain of the Lord. Reading God's law earlier, I mentioned that we are condemned before Mount Sinai outside of Christ. Now, if we know our Old Testament, Moses and Elijah were also mountain guys. Right? They're not from the Midwest, apparently. They received God's word on Mount Sinai, on different occasions. Right? Moses and Elijah also had a glimpse of God's glory on Mount Sinai. Now look at the parallel of Mount Sinai, God partially revealing his glory to Moses and Elijah, and the mountain of transfiguration where Jesus was in a state of glory with Moses and Elijah together with the disciples. This parallels the disciples not only having a glimpse of Jesus in the state of glory, but hearing God's word on that mountain. We see that in verse 7. Right? So we know that Moses and Elijah were not mere apparitions. Because it says in the text, they were talking with Jesus. Now, Mark did not tell us what they discussed. But thankfully, Dr. and the historian uh, Luke did. And they talked about, in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, the departure, literally Christ's exodus towards his death. In Luke chapter 9, verse 31, which he will accomplish at Jerusalem, which is on another mountain. The transfiguration of Jesus in the presence of Elijah, Moses, and even before his disciples, clearly shows the continuity of God's redemptive plan from the gracious old covenant into the more gracious new covenant. Through Jesus Christ, who is the Christ. From Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. Prophesied by the prophets Moses and Elijah. Received and will be proclaimed by the apostles Peter, James, and John. Jesus is the center, the front and center of God's redemptive plan. And John Calvin captured this. When he said, God is comprehended in Christ alone. 
beloved congregation, to believe that Jesus is front and center, not only in the history of redemption, but in our lives and in the life of the church, is of first importance. To know for sure that Christ lived the life we cannot live and died the death we should have died, give us our greatest joy in life. Give us greatest hope. Because the joy of our salvation is front and center of our whole being. It is the one thing that determines everything else. We can refer to the prayer of David when he said, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. What we celebrate every Lord's Day... And what, we, what sustains us and equips us to go out to the world and live, a, live out our faith is the joy of our salvation. It is the purpose of our vocation, the goal of our parenting, and the hope in our grief. The salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. Looking to Christ as our Messiah is not exclusive to our salvation as sinners. Right? But even in our sanctification as saints. That's why even John Calvin used the word regeneration to mean repentance. Regeneration precedes faith. And regeneration flows from faith. Who is Christ to you? Who is Christ to your family? Who is Christ to you as a student? as a mother, as a father, as a son or daughter, as an employer or an employee. Who is Christ to us determines everything else. Our principles, our philosophy and purpose, our decision-making, the way we raise our kids, the way we respond to our misunderstanding with our spouse, not taking out the trash or a more serious problems in marriage. Our joy and our salvation determines how our lives will be shaped by that, by that gospel. Let us look to Him. Before we came here in America, we visited the Memorial Cross in Bataan. And when we were on the top of the hill, a great cloud passed through that mountain. And just a disclaimer, we did not hear a voice. But that 95-meter-high cross vanished before our eyes. I told my wife that, you know, that would be a good sermon illustration in the future. So here it is. You see, when the author of Hebrews exhorted his congregation to fix their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, it implies that our disobedience, our lukewarmness, our sinfulness are not the main issues. They are symptoms and consequences of the main issue, our failure to fix our eyes. 
on Jesus. So we look to Christ first and foremost. Secondly, our next point, we listen to Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God. Looking to Christ and listening to Him go hand in hand. Right? Peter believed that Jesus was the Christ. He probably made the single best Christological confession ever. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He got his eyes on Jesus. Right? But was he listening? Was it not clear what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 31? If you have your Bibles, you can look at that. It says here, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days... Rise again. What part of suffer, die, and rise from the dead was unclear to Peter? And the sad thing is that no matter how glorious the transfiguration was and how it was clear what Moses and Elijah and Jesus talked about, Peter, though his eyes were fixed on Jesus, he was not listening. And that is the reason why he had a different interpretation of the transfiguration. And brothers and sisters in Christ, it is one thing to look to Jesus, but quite another to listen to him. It is one thing to lay hold of our beautiful Reformed tradition and confess what we believe of Christ is Quite another thing to live according to our confessions. Listen to Peter in verses 5 to 6. Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Now listen to that, to that man. Listen to those words. It is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. Or other translation rendered it tabernacle. Let us make three tabernacles. One for you. One for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were frightened. Now, if Peter had paid attention to the words of Christ in the previous chapter, the purpose of the transfiguration would have made sense to him. Christ's transfiguration was looking forward to his redemptive work and his glorious resurrection. Not looking backward into the old ways of the old covenant. Build a tabernacle? Really? That's going back. Instead, Peter thought of a plan. Aha! That was a good plan. Or was it? I heard from a Dutch minister up in Michigan this quotation, If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Now, Peter's proposal, without a doubt, was well meant, but it was almost laughable. His ignorant response was backward into the old ways of building a tabernacle. He failed to see that the transfiguration of Jesus Christ looks forward to the new and better way. That Jesus as the Christ 
did not need a tabernacle to dwell in because Jesus is the Son of God who tabernacled and dwelt among His people. And to our point earlier about the Gospel of John as the exposition of the implication of Christ's transfiguration, we read this in chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory. Glorious the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now look at our text, Mark, Mark, Mark chapter 9, verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Again, we see here word and deed. Words from the Father. This is my Son. Listen to him. Indeed, that cloud was significant. We know it. The cloud is Shekinah glory. Shekinah glory in the Old Testament was God tabernacling among his people. It is God visiting his people. And we see here a shadow from the Old Testament being fulfilled in Christ. Beloved congregation, like Peter, in our ignorance of God's will, we tend to put up man-made tabernacles, if you will. And instead of seeing that beautiful Shekinah glory, our own opinion, our own feelings, our own wisdom overshadow that beautiful glory. We tend to put up a man-made tabernacle, if you will, thinking that doing what we think, feel, and tell ourselves is good is the way to go. Like Peter, we tend to be blinded by our well-meant plans for our kids, for our family, our careers, our church. Our hearts can very well tell us that what we want for our children, our church, and our career is good. We need to ask the question, is it really? Our dilemma is not to simply know what is good, but ultimately to do the will of God. Our plans may sound good, but unless it is the will of God, it will not prosper and the Apostle John reminds us, test the spirits whether they are from God. Listen to Jesus and live accordingly. It is one thing for Peter to confess that Jesus is the Christ, but it is another to live by his confession. It is one thing to confess with our mouths that Jesus is the Lord. It is quite another thing to behold him supreme over our lives. Self-serving and man-centered agendas do not have a place in the Christian life and in the life of the church. And thankfully, God has appointed concrete means whereby we can listen to Christ. Number one, listen to God's word. And make diligent use of God's ordinary means of grace as we listen to the preaching of God's word every Lord's day. Again, mysteriously, we are being summoned by God 
to ascend Mount Zion on the Lord's day. It's like nothing else in the world. And the same is true whenever we hear the preaching of God's word. According to our confession, it's as if Christ is speaking to us in his word through his servant. Come here every Lord's day with faith to receive God's preach word. It's always it's always good to have kids that remind me that we have to go to evening service if I'm preaching somewhere that only has morning service. I was in Rockford, Illinois last Sunday and they only have invited speakers to preach in the morning and the kids will always remind and ask the question, where are we going for the evening service? But you get the point. Not saying that, not binding your consciences if you're not going or attending the evening service. That's not the point. The point is, it's good to be reminded that this is the Lord's day. The second means that we can have is to lay hold of our Reformed tra- tra- tradition. It is a helpful fence to protect us from falsehood. We listen to Christ by laying hold of this faithful summaries of God's word in the ecumenical creeds and reformed confessions. And number three, we can listen to Christ by listening to our elders. Talk to your elders, brothers and sisters in Christ. Bother them. Send them an email. Leave them a message. Ask them questions, hard questions. They are Christ's under-shepherds. If you are planning to get married or change careers, if you have marital issues, you have questions about your faith, or you are discouraged or distressed, and you have prayer items you want to pray for, talk to your elders. Ask them for their help. It's very, very important exhortation to our church, especially during this season of the church, right? And number four, another means whereby we can listen to Christ is when we catechize our children. Catechize our children. Because whether we like it or not, they will be catechized by the world. For the past months, I have to explain what has been happening in this woke generation to my kids because I'm, I'm surprised they know about it. You know, the LGBTQ problem, they know about it and I have to explain it to them. Catechize your children. Look to Jesus Christ, listen to him and live accordingly. This brings us to our third and last point. We live as people for whom Christ suffered and rose from the dead. Verses 9 to 13 tell us that as Jesus and the three disciples descended from the mountain, the topic of Christ's suffering and resurrection were brought up. Now one familiar theme in the book of Mark, which is mentioned at least ten times, is how he would not, Jesus would not want the disciples or other people or even the demons to speak about him and his work. 
Only this time he told the three disciples when would be the right time to speak about him. And verse 9 says, As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The resurrection of Christ is the vindication of everything he thought about himself and everything he has done, especially his death on the cross. Again, the same theme, word and deed. But in verse 10, the disciples seem not to understand what Christ meant about his resurrection from the dead. Probably because they still did not want to think that Jesus, the Messiah, should die. That's why if you read verse 10, it says here, So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They are not ignorant of the resurrection from the dead. They were taught of that. They believe that there is a resurrection from the dead. It's clear that there was still an unbelief in their hearts about what they just witnessed and heard, even after witnessing the resurrection, the, the, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. There was still unbelief. Listen to their question in verse 11. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Remember, there is always an assumption in every question, right? When my wife asked me last month about a Christmas gift, no, we're Presbyterians, but we can sometimes use that. He asked, she, uh, my wife asked me, will having a crock pot help make cooking Filipino dishes easier? She wanted a crock pot. That's the point, right? She wants one of those efficient crock pots. You'll probably see them after the service downstairs. Now, what was the assumption of the disciples when they asked the question? They were trying to fish something from Jesus. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? They were referring to the prophecy of Malachi, which is always understood to refer to the day of glory, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is supposed to be glorious, contrary to the idea of Jesus dying. Right? Is it possible they ask the question because they still cannot accept the fact that Jesus needs to suffer and die? Yes. There was a doubt in them, an unbelief, even after witnessing a glorious miracle of the transfiguration. Now here's the question. Did Peter's plan make more sense to them than the plan of God? Did Peter think that by putting up tabernacles for Jesus and Elijah and Moses, then Jesus would not need to die. And that it would be the day of, of glory that Malachi prophesied about. The coming of Elijah. The day of glory. Peter must have thought that if people went up to that mountain and saw Jesus with Elijah and Moses dwelling in their glittery tabernacles, they would believe that Christ was the Messiah. Yes? No. 
In previous chapter 8.32, Peter had the audacity to rebuke Jesus for saying he would suffer and die. Did Peter think he was setting his mind on the things of God? Chapter 8, verse 33. He was trying to look for ways for Jesus not to die. Rabbi, it is good that we are here. The disciples missed a very important messianic work. The Messiah must suffer first. He is not the Messiah if he did not suffer. And Jesus said in verses 12 to 13, now listen carefully, this is a little bit hard to understand, but he said, and he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they please as it is written of him. Mark here was quoting from the book of Malachi. John the Baptist and his ministry of preparing the way of the Messiah fulfilled Malachi's prophecy. And the disciples understood this as it was described in Matthew's account of transfiguration. Chapter 17, verse 13 of Matthew, it says, Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Okay? Now this is an interesting pericope. A passage, a particular text. Jesus was speaking about Elijah, but he was also speaking of the second Elijah, John the Baptist. But there is more. He was speaking also of himself. As we can say, the third, the true and better Elijah. There are three Elijahs here. And to give you an illustration of this particular text. In the Philippines, we have mountains everywhere. It's not something that most part of the Midwest can relate to, but we were just, you know, in Des Moines several months ago, Des Moines, Iowa, for a puppet supply. It was a six-hour drive with just corn, soy, and hay. 300 miles. We were joking around, me and my wife, we said that we got depressed after that six-hour drive. And the longest mountain range in the Philippines extends for approximately 540 miles. That's just one mountain range. We can see it from our house. And here's the thing. From afar, it looks like one long mountain, right? But as you go closer, you realize it's not just one mountain. And I did a mission trip to a tribal group at the end of that mountain range in 2011. It took us 24 hours just climbing up and down one mountain after another and literally crossing rivers and streams of water through every valley. From afar, it's just one line. When you get closer, you see mountain ranges. In the Bible... The history of God's redemptive plan also has its mountain ranges, if you will. The prophecy of Malachi about Elijah points to John the Baptist, yes. But Jesus is the true and better Elijah who shall restore all things. The first Elijah did not die, right? And was brought up into glory. 
The second Elijah, John the Baptist, was treated with contempt and killed. But the third Elijah will suffer and die, will, but will be brought out of the dead into glory. The first and second Elijah look forward to that third and final Elijah who, are, who shall restore all things and who shall be the true and better prophet who shall come in glory with God's ultimate judgment to all the living and the dead. Jesus is the true and better prophet who not only bears the words of the Father but who himself is the message of the Father. The message was clear. Christ shall restore and make all things glorious in him, through him, and for him. But he must suffer first. And that is what the disciples miss. This Messiah is not the Messiah if he does not suffer first. Beloved congregation, exaltation is preceded by humiliation. That is the gospel of Christ. And that also sets a pattern for the Christian life. We share in the sufferings of Christ in order that we may be glorified with Him. It is only fitting that we live and have our being to His glory and for the sake of the gospel, even if that means we must suffer. So let us not waste our sufferings. We grieve our suffering, but let us not waste them. As the great Spurgeon said, we must worship God there in our sufferings. But consider the disciples, Peter, James, and John. Though there was ignorance, unbelief, and doubt in the hearts and minds of Peter, James, and John, we know that Jesus was gracious to them. Right? If you look at the book of Mark, there are a lot of passages that speak about the disciples' unbelief. In chapter 4, verse 40, Jesus asked, Have you still no faith? Chapter 6, verse 6 even says, And he marveled because of their unbelief. Chapter 6, verse 52, For they did not understand, but their hearts were hardened. Chapter 8, verse 1, Jesus said to them, Do you not yet understand? Brothers and sisters, our hearts are hardened by unbelief. Our hearts are hardened by our own wisdom. Our hands are paralyzed by our, by our own doubts. But Jesus is gracious to us. He's gracious to us in our shortcomings, our unbelief, our ignorance, and doubts. And so let us call upon God and acknowledge that in our weakness, Jesus is our strength. In our foolishness, Jesus is our wisdom. And in our shortcomings, Jesus is faithful. We know how God mightily used Peter, James, and John after the resurrection of Christ. From their ignorance, unbelief, and immaturity to their radical commitment to the gospel ministry, even through their martyrdoms. Like their Savior, they suffered and died for the sake of the gospel. Beloved, the transfiguration looked forward to Christ's glorious resurrection. Christ's resurrection changed the disciples powerfully. And we confess the same resurrected Christ. 
So let us go like the disciples and proclaim Jesus the Christ, the beloved Son of God, even if it means that we will be rejected, laughed at, and be persecuted. Let us look to Him, listen to Him, and live for Him. Jesus restores all things. Run to Him. If you are here this morning and you think you are too broken to get fixed, you are not. If you think your marriage or your kids are out of God's reach for restoration, they are not. The same grace that overcame the disciples' weaknesses and shortcomings is the same grace that will save you, keep you, and restore you. Look to Him. Run to Him. Pray, Lord, help me and help my unbelief. If you are here this morning and you know in your heart of hearts that you love God, and want to honor Him in your life, in your family and vocations, but you do not know how, listen to God's Word. Come here every Lord's Day. Receive the preaching in your heart and talk to your elders. If you are here this morning and know that what you profess with your mouth is inconsistent with how you live your life, repent of your sins. Run to Jesus. He is gentle and lowly in heart. He wants to forgive you and restore you. Repent of your unbelief. Repent of that habitual and secret sins that drag you away from your Christ. Run away from those things that drain life in you and run to Christ. He is our city of refuge. And to the congregation, to look and listen to Jesus and live for Him It's not and will never be accomplished outside of the community of God's covenant people. This is not a solo mission. This is a church enterprise. It takes a church to raise a godly child. Let us help one another to continually believe that Jesus is Christ so that we can behold Him supreme overall. Let us pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, May your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be exalted in and through our lives, in and through your church. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.